Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. Let's actually back up and uh, let's go ahead and start in verse 19 and we'll read this entire passage here which deals with the full assurance of faith. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near, excuse me, with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So Paul, or the, the, the writer, I say Paul, that was kind of a, a slip there. I'm not sure who it actually was. There are some aspects of the book of Hebrews that do not appear to be Pauline in their writing. Uh, there, there are a few different suggestions. It could have been Timothy, uh, some suggest that it might have been Priscilla and Aquila together that wrote uh, this this uh, uh, this book. But what is one of the ar- overarching themes of the book of Hebrews? If you have read Hebrews before, what is one of the things that you notice as you're reading through there? I'll give you a minute. I think you said it in your reading, assurance. Okay, assur- assurance is one for faith. Yeah, faith. In fact, we have the the hall of faith, if you will, uh, which is Hebrews chapter eleven, talking about all the things that people have gone through, uh, the the struggling, the sufferings, the persecution of whom, as he says at the end, the world is not worthy. Um, so, faith could be one. What, what's something else? For lack of a better word, better. Better. Yes, that's how I sum up Hebrews. Hebrews is better. What is better? A better covenant. What was the old covenant? The law. Okay. And like, let's let's start with the law for just a moment. So we talked about that this morning when we were dealing with the Decalogue. Again, the purpose of the law was not to bring Israel to God. It was to show them how far separated they were from God. And so what does the new covenant do? We said we it right there at the very beginning. We used a word there that speaks of that which is better. This is the reality that in this first part of the chapter it says that the law is just a shadow of the thing that's to come. And this is the reality right now. It's coming. Jesus Christ is here. Yep, but what's the word that he uses there? What's that? Holiest? No, right there at the beginning of chapter tw- of uh, verse 19. Therefore, since we have confidence yeah could, could the could the what what does the king james say does it boldness. use confidence boldness okay boldness uh, what happened in the old testament let's refresh our memories for just a few moments what happened in the old testament you were an israelite you were out in the wilderness and then of course later they went into the promised land but you are living your daily life doug and you commit a sin what then Okay. Because you can't 
Because they didn't have the sin, uh, sin atonement like we do. Okay. So basically, they're uh, they were scared or in fear for messing up. And that's actually a good way of putting it. When when Moses goes up to the mount and he comes back down and everything that transpires and God tells them don't come near the mount what does it say the children of Israel did? They were in fear of their life. They saw the thunder, they saw the lightning, they saw everything that was taking care of on the mount and they even a couple of times they say you go talk to God for us. Because if we talk to him what's going to happen? We're going to die. He's going to kill us. Now, we know that that was not the case, but the difference was that Moses was called to a life of holiness. We know that he still had error. He still made mistakes, etc. But when we come now, we have a better or more sure way in the New Testament in that we are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. For example, in the Old Testament... When he in the first part of Hebrews, when he is speaking about the sacrifices that that took place, how often could how many people were actually allowed into the holy place? In the holy of holies, one person, just one person, was allowed to go into the holy of holies. How often was he allowed to go into the holiest of holies? One time a year. What was expected of him when he went into the holy of holies? What did he have to do when he went in? What was his purpose for being there? Okay. What happened? Something we, we talk about worship a lot of times, and worship sometimes we get to, we it seems like we want to define it in evangelical circles sometimes. We want to define what we think worship means, but God defines what he expects worship to be when we come before him. There are certain standards that he has. And so when the priest went in, what happened if the great high priest, if he stopped? Oh, hello, and a belated happy birthday and happy anniversary. He was dead. He had a rope that was tied around his ankle, and if the bell stopped chiming when he was walking around in there, what happened to, what did the people do? Pulled him out. Now, do you remember, let's go to the New Testament, and we find that uh, uh, Zechariah goes into the temple, and it was his turn to be able to offer incense before the Lord, right? And what is one of the comments that were made by the people? They were surprised at how long he tarried. So now we don't have to worry about a time limit. Now we have something better, as Brother Diego said, and the sacrifices that were there. Why would we want to offer bulls and and goats anymore? I mean, they they didn't they didn't last forever. The, because the bulls and goats and sheep and all that that were sacrificed, the blood was to cover their sins for a short period of time. Jesus was one for all. Absolutely. Once for all, because the sacrifices that were offered were never intended to be lasting. For example, uh, look at Adam and Eve. When that first lamb had to be sacrificed so that they could be clothed, they still had to offer sacrifices regularly. 
And as we have said before, if you stop and consider what this picture, I mean, th this room would not have been very big. I mean, it's probably about the size maybe of this little cupboard area here that they would have gone into. And as they went into the, or as that high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, he has the basin or the bowl of blood and he goes in and the purpose is to be able to sprinkle it. Again, if you've been around any kind of animals or death or an, like an abattoir or anything like that, what, what assaults you? The smell does. Anybody here ever been down to like Greeley? <laughs> Go down to Greeley and what do you smell? I mean, you can smell it before you even get into town. You smell the meat packing plants. But can you imagine all of that blood? Thousands, thousands and thousands of animals that have been sacrificed thousands of, of times that the high priest has come at one well, thousands, he, he wouldn't have been in there, but the, the sacrifice is certainly at the opening of the temple, but to go into the Holy of Holies, if it was one time, let's say, who was it? Uh, Brother Al this morning, I think, was talking about uh, the time frame. So we're talking roughly 1,200, 1,300 years. So if you say one time per year, that's 1,200 or 1,300 times from the time that the tabernacle was instituted in the desert until this period of time right before or when the Lord Jesus Christ is here on earth. So there's 1,200 or 1,300 times that the high priest has gone in and this blood dried, caked, stinking, has filled the, the smell of this, has filled the holiest of holies just for the purposes of Israel being able to come before God and know that their sins are covered temporarily again one more time. Now, when we look at Isaiah chapter 3 for or 53 for example, what how does the Lord how is the Lord Jesus Christ described by Isaiah? And what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to paint a picture, a better picture as Hebrews does, what we see in the Old Testament versus the New. So I've just painted this old picture for you. The old covenant that is there, the old sacrifices that are there, the killing of the animals that would have taken place. You've got this holy of holies. What happens, for example, if you ever have uh, uh, your nose starts bleeding um, and you're standing over the sink, you're trying to get it to stop, and one drop sneaks out and it falls and it hits the sink. What does it do? Splatters. Splatters. So I want you to consider what's taking place in Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 1. What does he say? First thing that he says. Who believed our report? I mean, is this really even possible, what we're talking about here? Yes, we would have to wait another 800 years almost before we would see the fulfillment of this and what we know takes place in the book of Hebrews. But in as Isaiah is writing here, you've got everything that is getting ready to take place with the exile. And as he is writing, he says, Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And he talks about all of these things that are coming from the Messiah. Not even Isaiah understands this. And how does it describe Jesus Christ in this passage? If you're, for those of you who are looking at it. One way he says uh, he had no beauty or no, that made him no attraction that, we should, that should draw us to him. Absolutely. There, there was nothing. I mean, it, it, we talk about... We talk about what Jesus, or we have talked about this in the past, what Jesus would look like. Let me assure you, he didn't look like a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, 
tall, six-foot Nordic European. He didn't look like that. He looked like everybody else. There was nothing about Jesus that would have stood out to make him any different than any of the other people that were around him. He probably would have been olive skin, dark, tight, curly black hair, or brown, dark brown hair. He would, have, he would not have been any different. What else does it say? Lamb led to the slaughter. Now let's consider this picture in Hebrews again. You remember what we were talking about? The splattering of the blood. Everything that is taking place with this sacrifice and this, this room that is the holiest of holies. And why is that room holy? Was it because of the high priest? No, it's the presence of God. It's the presence of God. But what, what is it that allowed God to come down? And what do we find takes place when God comes down into the holy of holies? Right, but what does Hebrews chapter 9 say about the shedding of blood? No remission of sins. So we've got this, we've got this bloody religion, this blood-filled religion that is absolutely soaking into everything that you have around you. And then we come to the Lord Jesus Christ and we find a better has come because it wasn't just Jesus Christ pricking his finger. It wasn't a matter of just one or two drops of blood. It required him. In fact, there's a hymn I think that we sing um, where, the, where the blood of the lamb was spilt. Um, grace, grace, marvelous grace. And I like the words of the hymn, but I don't like the words at the very end of that first part of that very first verse where it says the blood of the lamb was spilt because spilling indicates an accident. The blood of the lamb was not spilt, it was shed. It was a deliberate action. And it required that to be able to make sure that we have the forgiveness of sins. Now, there are times when we come to the table of the Lord, for example, is, and as I was pondering this, and I've been thinking about Hebrews chapter 10 now for, for quite some time, and I didn't know that I would have an opportunity to, to go through it like this tonight, because we are, I'm actually working on something for the newsletter to be able to pass out, Lord willing, you'll have that next week. And we're going to cover some aspects of what that encouragement means. But I think it's important for you and I to understand that the encouragement that we get from Hebrews, the encouragement that we get from seeing this, this hideous, let's just be real blunt about it, this hideous, gory scene that takes place in the Holy of Holies is for us. It's for the bride of Christ. This took place so that because what was in the past, the shadow of the past, as you said, the shadow of the past, that which took place in the Old Testament was not good enough to be able to bring us with confidence and boldness to Christ. You see, but now it doesn't matter where you're at in your Christian walk, whether you're a brand new believer, whether you're the thief on the cross, or who was formerly a thief on the cross, you get to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and Paul talks to the church at Corinth and he says, such, what? Were some of you. But now you have been, somebody look that up for me. Look up 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. And if somebody could read that for us out loud. And my purpose in sharing this with you tonight is for you to be encouraged in your walk knowing what Christ did on your behalf. 
You see, we can look at the cross and we think, oh, that's, that's a nice cross. Sometimes we've got a little gold cross. Some people wear a gold cross. The cross was nothing that was pretty. The cross, that, that cross piece that Jesus was, was crucified on had probably been soaked with the blood of many other convicts before him. This piece of wood that was hanging on there that is resting on this cross piece on the top of the cross uh, more than likely was soaked and stained a dark red from the blood that had been congealed and that had sat on that wood down through the whatever amount of time that that wood was used because they used them over and over. In fact, it, there are many times in history shows if you read, anybody here ever read Josephus? Okay. Jo- Josephus is not nighttime bedtime reading. Okay, it's, it's not an easy book to read. But Josephus in the antiquity of the Jews actually speaks about things like uh, uh, about the crucifixion. And it's quite probable that the cross piece that Jesus was actually hung from very well the next day was probably being used for another convict. Okay, there was nothing that was actually special about that particular piece. So somebody read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, uh, verse 9 and 10. Let's start there. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Okay, stop right there just a second, son. Who does it say will not inherit the kingdom of heaven? The unrighteous people. The people that don't qualify to go in that room. That's who he's talking about. And the unrighteousness there is what? Based on what? Is it just because of somebody who's a homosexual? Just because of somebody who is an adulterer? Keep, continue reading. Do not be Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who Okay, hold on just a second. Idolaters. What is an idolater? All of us that worships. Right, but what, but what is an idolater? Putting anything before God. Anything and before whatever God. Whatever it is. If it's the beauty of a person, money, anything. Okay, so basically we've all failed then. Yeah. We all don't qualify to walk in that room. Okay. Uh, nor men who pro- practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, now before we go on to the next verse, in Romans chapter 1, we actually find that it's not just those who do those, but those who endorse those who do those things, who actually don't qualify to go into the Holy of Holies. So this is the seriousness. I mean, we, we look... Anybody here ever been outside of America to a third world country? Okay? When you go into a third world country, I, I mean, if you were to bring most people, for example, in Liberia where we were, and bring them into a congregation like that, they would just be... They would be overwhelmed. Seeing what we've got, seeing the padded chairs, seeing the fact that we've got AC during the summer, we've got, we've got heat that we can turn on during the wintertime, we've got electricity that runs all the time, we've got fans, we can make things look nice. Now, in the Old Testament, the worship that is, that is required by God, is there a niceness to that? Was there a niceness to the worship that God demanded? Did it look pretty? Oh, 
You mean the sacrifices? Sacrifices. It was ugly. It was very ugly. But this is what God required. So now we come to the New Testament. Trenton, go ahead and read the next verse there. And we find these people who are, who are living in such a way and acting and endorsing those who live this kind of lifestyle. These are the people that Paul is talking about in the church at Corinth. Now, here is something interesting. The verb that he uses here references some who were actually in the church who were probably living these kind of lifestyles. Such were some of you. Go ahead and read verse 11. And such were some of you that you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Okay, first, washed. Next word. Sanctified. What's the next word? Justified. So let's see what it takes for us to be able to have confidence. No, number one is right here, knowing that we have been cleaned. If we haven't been cleaned, we have no business coming here for worship. We have no business for taking of the Lord's table. But if we have been washed, that means we are clean. The question is, does God leave us to wallow in that sin? Absolutely not. This is the second part where this comes in, Brother Doug, and that is not only are we washed, but we are sanctified. What does the word sanctified mean? Set apart. So are we any different than the world? That's really what it boils down to. Because if we look the same, smell the same, talk the same, do the exact same things that we did before we say we came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, are we truly a believer? According to the word of God? No. Because sanctification takes us, we call it progressive sanctification, it takes us from where you are at right now and takes you to become more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Your path is going to be different than my path because there are things that the Lord needs to do a work in my heart just like he does in your heart. But the direction of the path is always going to be the same. It's always going to be toward Jesus Christ. So if we are being set apart, what does it mean, though, to actually be set apart? We, we talked this morning, and I gave the little illustration, the funny illustration about the guy who is living in a cell. Says two words a year. What are we talking about living a holy life? Does it mean selling everything, going and living on a mountaintop, Brother Doug, and, and, and just waiting and hoping for the return of the Lord? Is that what it means to be holy? What does it mean to be holy? Live holy. Okay. But, but we can use these kind of terms. What does it mean to live holy? To be holy. What does holiness mean? Well, we don't have holiness of our own. Right. But we, when we are living the Christian life, though, there are a lot of times that we can use this terminology. We can talk about progressive sanctification or we can talk about sanctification or justification. We really have no clue what it means sometimes. 
the practical outworking of that, what does that mean to you? How do we see that manifested in your life and mine? Transformation. Transformation. Transforming us from what? Put off, put on principle, Ephesians chapter 4. Putting off the old man, putting on the new. This is what sanctification means. So somebody says, well, how do you live a holy life? A holy life simply means that we are to live in such a way that people see more of Jesus Christ in us today than they saw previously. Because our life should be so different, so radically different that there should be no question if, if we were to go into your workplace or talk to your friends or talk to your family and, they, and we were to ask them, is so-and-so a Christian? What would the answer be? The things that we watch, the things that we listen to, the things that we say, the way that we interact with one another, the fellowship that we have, do we reflect the Lord Jesus Christ? Or would we hear the sad words, oh, you know, I didn't even know he was a Christian. I didn't even know she was a believer. And unfortunately, if we don't recognize what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if we don't see the better way that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will still be stuck in the old way, trying to live on a covenant of works that says, well, I'm not worse than, or I'm not worse than so-and-so. In fact, I'm better. Isn't that what happens sometimes in our lives? Isn't that sometimes what people see? Because instead of comparing ourselves to Christ, we compare ourselves to who? Other people. And when we compare ourselves to other people, you'll never understand this word right here. What does justification mean? In a nutshell, what is this here? This is a legal term. Okay, just as if I'd never sinned is one way to be able to look at, look at this. So if you say I'm justified just as if I'd never sinned, but there's more to it than that. There's justice that comes from the birth, from the death of Christ on the cross. And, and if he's just, then he's paid that penalty for me already. And I have accepted that. And I believe that. It's a great transaction. It's the great exchange. His robes for mine. What wonderful exchange. This is what he's talking about to be justified, this legal term that when God the Father looks down and he sees Mark Escalera or he sees whatever, put your name in there if you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, when God the Father looks down and sees you, it's not just as if you had never sinned. While that's part of it, what he sees is much more. He sees Christ has taken your place. The great exchange. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's the gospel in a nutshell. If you only had one verse, there are a lot of people that go to John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Yes, that's true. But there's also much more to it than that. This justification that takes place that says, not only is it as if you had never sinned, but you are free. Your debt looks like this now. Paid in full. 
Because this is the problem, is that we have sinned to such a degree, by our very nature, we are damned. We are doomed to a Christless eternity. If God were to give us justice, that's what he would give us. But he does more than that. He gives us mercy. He gives us love. This is why when you, if you have never read the book of Hebrews, I recommend over this next week, read the book of Hebrews because it is such a beautiful book that talks about a better than the Aaronic priesthood has come, a better than the Mosaic has come, a better than Melchizedek, Melchizedek who had no beginning and no end. Something better has come than that, better than the law. Do you remember what happened in the book of John when the disciples, three of the disciples, get the privilege of going up to be on the mountain with the Lord Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? What takes place? They're standing there. No, no, no. Well, when when they're up on the mountain there, and there's a there's a shadow that comes down, and they wake up or they come to, if you will, they realize who's there with Jesus. Moses and Elijah. Now, whether it was actually Moses and Elijah that was there or they had this vision that they saw this, but I believe the representation is you have Moses who represents the law and you have Elijah who represents the prophets. And Peter says, being the magnanimous fellow that he is, says, you know, it's great for us to be here. Why don't we build a temple for all three of you and we'll worship you? And what does the voice from heaven say? Does he say, this is my beloved son and the prophets and the law? Follow them, obey them, and you will have eternal life? This is my my beloved son. Hear him. And it says that when they lifted up their eyes, they saw what? Jesus only. You see, this is the wonder of the book of Hebrews. You can't start at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, and get all the way down through Hebrews chapter 13 and see anything other than Jesus when you complete it. Here's the wonder of what happens when you get to Hebrews chapter 11, for example, the hall of faith. Let's look at a couple of verses real quick. Let's start at Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to point out a couple of things to you. Long ago, it almost starts out like a fairy tale, doesn't it? Long, long ago in a land far, far, far away. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, the writer of Hebrews doesn't waste any time at all. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he, the Father, has appointed to be the heir of all things. He even gives you a brief history and he says he created the world through him. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he, Jesus Christ, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. We could actually end the book of Hebrews right there. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 4 is the total encapsulation of the life of Jesus Christ. One of the greatest classes that I ever had when I was in high school, I got to take an elective called the Life of Christ. It was a full year. 
When I went to school, there were several classes that we had that were about the life of Christ, one of them being a theology, a deeper theology class. Studying the life of Christ helps, helps zone out, if you will, the rest of the world. You know when you go to the doctor, if you've ever had your... How many of you have ever had your eyes checked? Okay? You guys are all kind of strange. Mine have always been brown. Not checked. Okay, never mind. Okay. So here's... When you go to the doctor, when you go to the doctor and he puts that big machine up to your, uh, up to your face and he says, Okay, now I want you to take a look and I want you to look at the balloon or the house or whatever it is that's at the far end. And what ends up happening... As he changes the picture, as he changes the lenses, it comes into focus. If you are reading the scriptures and you are not seeing Jesus Christ, you don't have the Bible in focus. That's what Hebrews is all about. This is why when we get this book, Praying Through the Bible, I mean, this is one. This has been a great encouragement to me, Brother Diego, as, as I read. I mean, this morning... Uh, look at Psalm 2. This is what we use downstairs. We actually alluded to this in, in the morning prayer time as well here in the service. But look at Psalm 2. Verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. And what does verse 12 say? Kiss the son. Kiss the son lest he be angry. You know, somebody came up to me after the service and they asked me a question in regards to what happens when we die. Actually, it was before the service. And they wanted to know what happens with our soul or our spirit after we die. Does it go to be with the Lord? And the question was, well, is there anything that I have to fear? And I said, that's a very good question. I said, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible is clear in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The problem is, if we go back to this right here and we have been justified, our account has been made clear, why would we not want to know more about the one who made that possible? So let's continue. Back to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. Somebody read that verse for us. Verse 15 and 16. 14 and 15? Uh, no, Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. Go ahead, you got that? You and I need mercy and grace pretty much daily. Hourly is what we need. 
And yet, when we talk about encouragement, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, the word there to encourage or to exhort one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. In fact, let's turn next to, back to chapter 10. And I want you to see this. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, Whoever is writing this is talking to a church full of believers. There are some who have gotten to this point in their life where instead of focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ, they've allowed the world to capture their attention again. And every time we seek to, one, to encourage one another, uh, for example, why do you think we do the benediction? Or why do you think I do the benediction at the end of service where I read a passage of scripture as our closing? Why do you think I do that? What is Numbers chapter 6? The Aaronic blessing that was given, that we gave this morning. May the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. Why do we give that? Why do you think we give that? Do we not have anything better to do on a Sunday morning to close out a service? It would be, it's a great ending. Sure. Absolutely. But what does that do for us? It encourages us. It brings us closure because we've just, we've just looked at something that not one of us can possibly keep and yet we can read this, the Lord bless you and keep you. It doesn't say the law bless you and keep you. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. If the Lord is the one who is causing his face to shine upon you, then there's nothing that we have to fear. But he says, again in verse 25, encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. When we partake of the table of the Lord and we're taking communion on the fourth Sunday of every month, that is a reminder to the world as well as to those who are visiting that it is one more time, but one less time until the Lord returns. We're saying by observing the communion table that we recognize the truth of scripture that Jesus is returning. So do you know what this should do? Reading the book of Hebrews, we should be able to go up and say, you know, I was thinking about you this week. I just want to encourage you in the Lord to read the book of Hebrews. You know what I'm doing by reminding you to read Hebrews? I'm telling you, be encouraged because the Lord is returning. He's coming back. And not only is he coming back for us, but he's bringing justice against all of those who do not obey his word. John chapter 3, verse 16, has a companion to it in John chapter 3, verse 36. Those who do not believe are under the wrath of God already. All the more as you see the day approaching. You know, there was a time, maybe some of you might remember it, but there was a time in years past where you went to church or you got prepared on a Saturday and you didn't go to work. You got up on a Sunday morning. You went early to church and you were there maybe a better part of a day. And you encouraged one another. You listened to the ministry of the word. You listened to the singing of Zion. You participated in singing those songs. Why? Because I think what it did, it helped you to be able to get through the rest of the week that was upcoming. The evil one knows how to get your attention. He certainly knows how to get mine during the week. 
We still have to face the flesh. We have to face the world. We have to face the evil one. We need encouragement. Do you know one of the biggest problems that churches just like ours, maybe even here, that we actually have to deal with? This right here. There is statistically, there is more depression found in the New Testament church or in the church today, the evangelical church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason for that is not because we don't have the truth of Scripture in front of us. It's because we are not looking for the truth of Scripture. You know, there, there are people who struggle, and I'm not talking about just being discouraged. I'm talking, about some, I'm talking about something that is far more than that, something that men like Martin Luther called the black dog that sought to swallow his life. And when depression seeks to, you know, you've been through counseling. You know what, you, you know what it's like to counsel people. Dad knows what it's like to counsel. Maybe there are others here who knows what, it, what it's like to counsel people. And the reason why depression comes into the church is because we have taken our eyes off of the right prize. This is, this is why it's not about numbers when people come on a Sunday night or come on a Wednesday night. And, and, I, and I'm going to say this probably until I'm blue in the face or until the Lord takes me home or takes you out of the area and moves you to another church or whatever. But when you come here, I know that the purpose of your coming here is for me to be able to teach or whoever it is, Brother Sam or Dad or Brother Diego or whoever it may be, we have other men who are coming in that have the ability to be able to teach. And as we are teaching the Word of God, it is encouraging you to be prepared for the return of the Lord. This is why Hebrews is so wonderful. Try to read through the book of or the chapter 11 and see what all of those people for the sake of their faith went through. Look at Hebrews chapter 11. Faith is the substance or the assurance of things that have hoped for the conviction of things not seen. Look at the end of the chapter. Verse 36 or verse 35. Some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. There's that word again. Others suffered, mocking, flogging, chains, imprisonment, stoning, being sawn in two, killed with the sword, went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. And all of these, verse 39 though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something, what does it say? Better for us and it's not in this life. My friends, we're just pilgrims passing through. We are looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. This is what Hebrews is there. That's what Hebrews is seeking to encourage you for is to look and see something better than the priesthood, something better than the law, something better than the prophets has come. It's Jesus Christ, so feast your eyes on him.
Look what he says in verse 13, or in chapter 13, verse 6. You may know this verse, verse 5, keep your life free from love of money, be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so that we can, what is that word, that next word? Confidently, we're back to where we started. Confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear what man can do to me. What more could you ask for? This is why I want you to be encouraged. This is why I want you to live your life, and I encourage you to live your life in such a way that that you are radically different. Everything about you is called to be radically different. The world's not going to understand. Your spouse may not understand. Your children, your grandchildren, your parents, your grandparents may not understand. But we need to live our life in such a way that we are so heavenly minded that only then will we be of any earthly good. That's what we're called to do. Because something better than the old covenant came. Can you imagine if we were still depending on the stink, the stench, the vile, revolting blood-soaked, blood-stained room that was over there every year having to go to Jerusalem to be able to offer another sacrifice, hoping and praying that the Messiah would come. That's not hope. Hope is believing that not only was he promised, but he actually came. He fulfilled the promises. And because he fulfilled those first promises, we can also be assured as we read in Acts chapter 1 and as we read all the way through the New Testament until we get to the end of Revelation and John prays himself in Revelation 22, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. That's my hope. This is why I can forgive others. This is why I can love others. This is why I can do the things that I do. This is why you're called to do the things that you do. That, that you do in your life because the better came. And it is a better way. It is a better covenant. Somebody was telling me this morning and they said, well, what do you know about the Jehovah's Witnesses? I said, they're a cult. I said, they're a cult that do not point to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to know what somebody believes, ask them, who do you say Jesus is? How about we turn to the book of Hebrews and I'll tell you who Jesus is. Because if your Jesus doesn't match up with my Jesus, you don't have a biblical Jesus. Has nothing to do with being a Baptist Jesus or a Presbyterian Jesus or a Methodist Jesus. Has everything to do with being a Bible Jesus. Sacrifice is pleasing to God. Isn't any wonder that the writer of Hebrews is able to say some of the things that he does in, in, in chapter 13? Let brotherly love continue. Have hospitality. Encourage one another. Why? Because the day's approaching. It's coming. We know it's on its way. We don't know when. But in the meantime, be prepared to live in such a way that not only are you know, or that you know and that you have confidence that you are on your way to the promised land, but that you can encourage others. It's easy for me to go up and just say little pious platitude words. Well, we'll be praying for you. When somebody like Brother Mike comes and his wife is not a believer. 
I don't know how painful that would be. You and I don't know what he's going through. You don't know what I'm going through. But whatever it is, if we know that we have the answers, we can come alongside, we can put our arms around each other and say, I know who is the answer though. Because somebody better came. Somebody better than what was offered in the Old Testament. This is why your brother is a Mormon. The LDS church believes and practices the way they do because they are trapped in a man-made religion that desires to keep people entrapped. In other words, if I know something about you that you don't know about me, I'm higher on the rung to heaven than what you are. But if I trust in the Lord and you're trusting in the Lord, we're all equal at the foot of the cross, Brother Doug. We're all forgiven because a better way has come. Any questions? Or comments? I can tell you that Hebrews has really been an encouragement to me personally here lately. And um, that's why I wanted to share with you tonight because I want you to be encouraged in your life knowing that, well, let's close with one more verse. Hebrews chapter 13. Listen to this benediction. This encouragement. Hebrews 13 verse 20. Now may the God of peace, well there's so much there, isn't there? Who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And this one verse just encapsulated everything that we summed up in the book of Hebrews. And all God's people said,